Welcome back to our Sunday School series on the book of Zechariah. Today we're going to be finishing up chapter 9 of the prophet. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Our text is going to be chapter 9 verses 9 through 17. So we're taking the second half of the chapter today. I'll read this for us, and then we'll pray, ask the Lord to bless our time together, and then we'll get into the content of the prophet. So again, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Hear now the word. Give a great shout, O daughter of Zion, and rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble. And he is riding on a donkey, upon a male donkey, the son of a female donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war shall be cut. And he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river until the ends of the earth. And even you, because of the blood of your covenant, I have set your prisoners free from the pit. There is no water in it. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Even this day I am declaring that I will return a double portion to you. For I have drawn Judah back as my bow, and I have filled the bow with Ephraim as its arrow. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will wield you as the sword of a warrior. And Yahweh will appear over them, and his arrow will go out like lightning. And the Lord Yahweh will blow in the trumpet, and he will march forth in the storms of the south. And Yahweh of hosts will protect them, and they shall consume and they shall destroy the stones of a sling. And they shall drink, and they shall be restless, and they shall be filled as if with wine, as a basin, as the edges of the altar. And Yahweh their God will save them on that day, as the flock of his people. For like the stones of a crown, they are prominent upon his land. For how good is he, and how beautiful is he, Grain satisfies the young man, and new wine, the virgins. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Zechariah. We pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning as we look at it. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would just um, change us as we study your word today together. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, last time, uh, last week, you may remember we were dealing with the first half of chapter 9 of Zechariah, and I was really struck by how connected to history the first half of the chapter 9 was, and uh, the second half is no different. There's actually a lot of prophetic fulfillment in the history of Israel in the intertestamental period, that is the time between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, uh, than we might normally think. And uh, I've been really uh, struck as I've done research to figure out the prophecies and the fulfillment and, and how to best understand Zechariah. It's fascinating to see how much of this prophecy has been fulfilled 
in a certain sense and how much of it has not been fulfilled in another more final and ultimate sense. You remember that last week we talked a lot about Alexander the Great and his conquests of the Middle East and of the whole Palestinian area of Israel. And uh, we walked our way through the verses and saw, especially with regard to the city of Tyre, how Zechariah predicted the fall of that city under the uh, the uh, conquering of Alexander the Great. And lest we had a little bit of suspicion and a little bit of, well, is that really the fulfillment? Uh, I think it begins to be even more clear here in the second part of this chapter where we see that that the, the kingdom of Greece is actually showing up by name in the text. And we've got some very interesting stuff to look at as we get into this passage. But I just want to tell you briefly, there are three sections to this passage that I've sort of broken down here. And uh, the first section is just verse 9, which is the king's coming, as we have these amazing prophecies about Jesus. And then we've got verses 10 through 12, which is the king's rule. And that's describing what Jesus is bringing as the coming king. And then we have the third section, which is verses 13 through 17, and that is the king's battle. And so there's a lot of stuff in this passage, as there is every week, and I'm excited to get into it because uh, we've got some fun history to talk about this morning. But first, let's take a look at our first section here, which is the king's coming, which is just verse 9. Now you will remember from last week that in verse 8, we have this amazing promise from God that he will encamp at his house. That is, he's going to encamp around Jerusalem and protect it from enemies. So God's promising his protection. And we saw that there's a certain sense in which that was fulfilled earthly in history when Alexander came to Jerusalem and there were some miraculous events that caused Alexander not to destroy Jerusalem. And so that's kind of a a minor fulfillment. But the major fulfillment is in uh, God surrounding his church and encamping around his church. And uh, that's more what this prophecy was pointing toward. But anyway, we can see in verse 9 that the, the conversation, the, the, um, the uh, explanation of this prophecy is continuing here in verse 9, where we are told that the daughter of Zion and the daughters of Jerusalem ought to rejoice. They ought to be excited and to shout out. And why? Because, behold, your king is coming. Now this is, you know, if we're just reading through Zechariah, very, you know, um, nonchalantly in our English Bibles as 21st century Americans, we see that phrase and we think, oh, that's interesting, a king is coming. And we may connect that with Jesus, but we've got to understand that this is what the people of Israel have been waiting for for centuries. They have been waiting for this promised king. In fact, this promise of the king goes all the way back to a passage in 2 Samuel. In fact, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have this very important event in redemptive history that we call the Davidic Covenant. Now, I've said on many occasions that uh, you don't have to listen to me teach or preach for very long before covenant is going to show up at some point, and this morning is no exception, because this passage is a is. is uh, giving a prof- a prophecy about the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant. And in 2 Samuel 7, we call this the Davidic covenant because this is the covenant that God made 
with David. And what happened was David, at the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, is he's sort of looking out of his palace, and he sees that God is dwelling in the tabernacle, because the temple hasn't been built yet, so God's dwelling in a tent, and David has built a palace for himself, and he's dwelling in this great house. And David's like, hey God, yeah, I think I should build you a house, because why should I dwell in a house of cedar, and you dwell in a tent? And uh, long story short, God says, hey David, you know what? You're not going to build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. But here I have this amazing promise for you, this amazing covenant that I'm going to make with you. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, here's what we hear from the lips of God. Now, this is God speaking to David here. Let me read you these couple of verses. Here's what God says. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now the uh, chancellor, CEO, and now the uh, president of Reformed Theological Seminary, where I am currently attending, Dr. Ligon Duncan, has said in a sermon on 2 Samuel 7 that you cannot understand the person and work of Christ unless you understand 2 Samuel 7. Let me say that again. You cannot understand the person and work of Christ unless you understand 2 Samuel 7 because 2 Samuel 7 is all about Jesus. Now there's of course a certain earthly fulfillment in this prophecy in uh, David's son Solomon who does build the temple and you can see that here in this passage and if you go back and read the whole chapter you can definitely see Solomon's uh, uh, being a fulfillment there. But ultimately this passage is pointing to Jesus. Because what God promises is that through David's offspring, that's, that is coming from the line of David, someone is going to come. A great king is going to come. And he shall build a house for God. And that king will have a kingdom that will never end. It will be a kingdom forever. And the Jews understood this. I mean, not about Jesus, but they understood that there was going to be a king coming in the future who would be even greater than Solomon because Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. The Bab uh, Solomon's kingdom lasted for a long time. The Davidic dynasty, the line of David, was one of the longest dynasties in the ancient world. In fact, I think it was the longest dynasty in the ancient world. It lasted for several hundred years. Uh, that's a long time for one family to rule without any usurpers. Uh, so it was a very long kingdom, but it wasn't forever. It didn't last forever. It came to an end at the Babylonian exile when Israel was taken into Babylon. And so like we've been talking about throughout this whole series in Zechariah, the people of Israel were greatly distraught when the Babylonian exile happened because they were like, God, 
How have you abandoned us? Don't you remember your covenant that you made with David? You said that his offspring would rule forever. Where's this kingdom, God? Where is this king coming from the line of David who will rule forever? Have you broken your covenant with us, God? And that was the inner turmoil that the Israelites were experiencing. And now, look at this prophecy in Zechariah under that light, understanding 2 Samuel 7 and the expectations of Israel, and they're wondering where God's fulfillment of the Davidic covenant was. Here we have a prophecy where God says in verse 9, Behold, Israel, your king is coming. That is no small promise. At the sound of words like that, you better believe the daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem are going to shout with joy. Right? They've been waiting for this forever. Now, what will this king be like? Look at the second half of verse 9 here. What's this king going to be like? Well, he's going to be righteous. He's going to be bearing salvation. These are, of course, perfect descriptions of Jesus Christ, are they not? Jesus was the righteous man. He's the righteous man described in Psalm 1. If you remember from my sermon that I preached now several months ago, Jesus is the righteous man. He's the one who lived that perfect righteous life that no other human being has ever lived. So Jesus is the righteous one. He's the one who bears salvation, the one who who saves his people. And then we have two more things that are told to us about this coming king. We're told he's going to be humble. He's going to be humble. Now this is the one part of this uh, this, uh, coming king that the Jews kind of forgot about. I mean, they remember that this king's going to be righteous, this king's going to be, you know, uh, bearing salvation, but they thought that that meant that this king would be a conquering warrior who would destroy the Roman Empire, throw that off of them, and then it would finally establish his kingdom. But they missed this part. They missed that this king is not going to be grand, you know, wearing all of these robes and this bright crown. No, this king is going to be humble. And not only is he going to be humble, but he's going to come in riding on a donkey. Now, of course, riding on a donkey is a sign of humility, right? It's very, very less than riding on a war horse, for example, or on a chariot or something like that. Uh, But kings in the ancient world would often ride on donkeys at times of peace and victory and triumph. And so when we see that this king was riding on a donkey, it's not only a sign of humility, but it's also a sign of victory, of the fact that peace is being or has been accomplished as a result of the king's rule. And that leads us now to point number two, which is the king's rule, which is verses 10, 11, and 12. Now look at what is going to happen. What is this king going to do? Verses 10, 11, and 12 are now beginning to tell us about this king's role as ruler. And we're told, first of all, that I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war shall be cut. So weapons of war are going to have no use in the kingdom of this person. That is, you won't need weapons of war. Well, why is that? Well, it's because God is going to be your weapon. Uh, This king is going to be 
the weapon. He's going to do all of the fighting. And furthermore, this king is going to speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea. It's going to cover the whole earth. This is going to be a serious kingdom. A serious kingdom. A kingdom that rules over the entire planet. You see why this kingdom cannot really be fulfilled as a literal earthly kingdom. Right? This has to be something greater than that. A kingdom that transcends the boundaries of nations. Rather, it's a, a, the kingdom of God's sovereign rule. By the way, just as a side note, this whole emphasis on Jesus as the king and coming to establish a kingdom is a very heavy emphasis in Jesus' own ministry, right? If you've ever read the Gospels, you know all that, basically all that Jesus talks about is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like that, and so on and so forth. Why does Jesus care about that? Well, because that was his task. He's the king. He's coming to establish a kingdom. Not an earthly kingdom that overthrows human authorities, at least not yet, but rather a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of the already and the not yet. Now that's a subject for another day, it's a little off topic, but you understand the importance of the kingdom here. This is a very important theme in the Old Testament and particularly in these verses that we're looking at here in Zechariah. Now he will speak peace to the nations. We've talked about this word peace before, the Hebrew word shalom, right? Meaning perfect peace, something that the Hebrew people looked forward to as sort of something that was going to come one day in the future. Notice that the angels at Jesus' birth, you know, what is it that they're singing to the shepherds? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Why? Because the king has been born and he will speak peace to the nations. Don't you just love how all of these themes sort of tie together? And if you if you understand the Old Testament, suddenly all of these little things in the New Testament start to make so much more sense. I just love how the scripture is all so interconnected. All right, so that's the king's rule. This is what's going to happen. This is what he's going to do. Now, in order to accomplish the rule, in order to uh, get all of these results that the king's rule is going to bring about, we have to have a battle. And that leads us to the third section here, which is verses 13 through 17, which is the king's battle. It's here where God says that he is going to draw Judah back as his bow and use Ephraim as the arrow. And he will, now look at this, this is very interesting. And he says, I, this verse 13, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I will wield you as the sword of a warrior. Now, I think this is just absolutely fascinating. The uh, Zechariah here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is calling out Greece, saying, listen, the Jews are going to deal a blow to you, O Greece. And that's pretty significant right now, because at the time of Zechariah's writing, Greece was not a world power, right? Alexander the Great had not come yet. Uh, the world power at this time is Persia. And Greece is sort of this little nation over in Macedonia. Uh, but it is growing in power, and it will eventually, under Alexander the Great, come and destroy the kingdom of Persia and basically take over all the known world. So again, prophecy here, amazing uh, foreknowledge here of Zechariah the prophet, uh, given by God. 
And if you're really careful, you'll actually notice there's a lot of Greek polemics going on here. That is, that Zechariah is poking fun at Greece and their gods, claiming that Yahweh is a better god. Look at in verse 14. And Yahweh will appear over them, and his arrow will go out like lightning. Now, why would that be significant? Well, of course, because the chief deity of the Greek pantheon is the god Zeus. And what is Zeus known for? He's known for casting bolts of lightning, or if you will, arrows of lightning, and for commanding the heavens and the storms and so on. And so there we go in the uh, second part of verse 14. Uh, The Lord Yahweh will blow in his horn, and he will go forth in the storms of the south. So what Zechariah is doing here is he is borrowing ideas from Zeus that is, that he's the god of storms and of lightning, and Zechariah is applying those attributes to Yahweh to show that Yahweh is greater. And of course Yahweh is greater because Zeus is a false god. And so what Zechariah is doing is saying Yahweh is the true god. He's the one who actually commands the storms. He's the one who actually commands the lightning. And because of that, his people, the Jews, are going to deal a blow to the Greeks. Now, when exactly did this happen? You may be thinking, I'm not sure of any time that that the Jews beat the Greeks in anything. Well, if you actually study history a little bit, you find out that this prophecy actually did come to pass. And I I find this really interesting. Uh, When Alexander the Great died, you remember Alexander conquered uh, Persian Empire, he conquered the whole known world. And when he died, his kingdom was split four ways between his generals. And uh, one of his generals took control of the Middle East. And one of the descendants of that particular general came by the name of Antiochus. And so Antiochus then later was in control of the Middle East. Now here's the thing. By the time Antiochus took the throne over the Middle East, over that quadrant of Alexander's empire, the Roman Empire was beginning to rise over in Italy. Rome was gaining ascendancy, it was putting its army together, it was conquering territory here and there. It was growing to become a world power that would eventually take over all of the known world. And Antiochus was a little bit nervous about Rome's ascendancy. And so what Antiochus decided to do was he wanted to unify all of his territories by imposing Hellenization upon them. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with the term Hellenization, it basically means the the inculcating of Greek culture and religion, and of course the Greek language too. So Alexander was big on this, uh, making everybody speak Greek, you know, imposing the language upon them, imposing Greek religion, and uh, so on. And so it was it was an effort to sort of unite the people. And we could actually thank Alexander the Great for this because it was Alexander the Great who uh, sort of imposed the Greek language on everybody in his kingdom which made it possible for the New Testament to be written in a language that most people could understand. Uh, you got to understand, in the ancient world, it was very common for you know, an entire kingdom to have many, many, many different, completely different languages being spoken. And some people just couldn't understand other people. And so it was quite a unique situation in history when Alexander the Great imposed Greek on everybody, and that caused everyone to really have a kind of international language that everyone could understand. And uh, that made the New Testament writings very important, being written in Greek, that they could be dispersed between uh, all of the people. Well, anyway, 
Uh, Antiochus imposes Hellenization, the Greek culture and religion on everyone. And of course, naturally, because he's in charge of the Middle East, he's imposing this on the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And you can imagine the Jewish people in Jerusalem do not want any part of Greek religion. They don't want to be worshiping Zeus or the Greek pantheon. They want to be worshiping Yahweh. And so the Jews resisted Antiochus. And in response, Antiochus stopped worship at the temple, destroyed manuscripts of Old Testament scripture, forbade circumcision, and even, (laughs) crazily, he sacrificed a pig on the altar at the temple. Now, of course, a pig is an unclean animal, and so this was absolutely an abomination to the people of Israel. And this is actually probably a fulfillment of Daniel chapters 11 and 12 about the abomination of desolation, uh, with Antiochus sacrificing the pig here on the altar at the temple. But that's a subject for another day if we ever, some for some reason, do a series on Daniel. In any case, the Jews were absolutely outraged by this. As you can imagine, uh, Antiochus desecrated the holy places and stopped temple worship. Well, you can imagine what the Jewish people did was they revolted. And this is the famous Maccabean Revolt. You can read about this in First and Second Maccabees, which are two books included in the uh, Roman Catholic canon of Scripture. And Protestants don't include those books uh, because we don't believe that they're Scripture. However, they are interesting history and this fascinating time period to read about. But anyways, the Jews revolted in the Maccabean Revolt and through a series of pretty incredible events, they actually expelled the Greeks from Jerusalem. So they, they were successful in their revolts. They got the Greeks out of Jerusalem, were able to reestablish the Jewish religion and the worship system, and they had a full century of independence from outside influence. And they, they had a full century where they were sovereign to themselves until Rome came and conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC. Now that Maccabean revolt and the century of independence, many, and I think rightly, have pointed to Zechariah here and have said, hey, see, Zechariah knew this was going to happen. Maybe not in all the details, but Zechariah prophesied about this, that the Jewish people would strike the Greek people, and he would that, that God really did stir up the sons of Zion against the sons of Greece so that they would expel them from the city and the true worship of the true God would be able to continue. Now that is quite a, a radical and quite a fascinating fulfillment of this prophecy, but we need to remember that's not the full and final fulfillment of Zechariah 9. And the reason for that is this. The, the independence that the Maccabean revolt created didn't last. As I just said a moment ago, Rome came and conquered Jerusalem in 63, and then they were right back to where they were before. They were oppressed by a different government, and that's the situation that Jesus entered into. And so that kingdom, if you will, right, uh, didn't last. It only lasted a century. And God, in 2 Samuel 7 did not promise that the kingdom would last for a century. He prophesied that it would last for forever. And Zechariah here, you look at the language, you look at what's going on here, he will bring peace. Well, this is not a lasting peace that the Maccabean revolt created. This was a temporary peace, sort of, if you will, a type or a foreshadowing of some greater fulfillment of the prophecy that was going to happen in the future. 
And so we need to look at this prophecy as something that is fulfilled by Christ because, you see, it's only Christ who can really fulfill what we see in verse 16. Yahweh, their God, will save them on that day as the flock of his people. You see, Greece in this prophecy certainly was uh, dealt a mighty blow from God. They certainly received their lightning bolts and their storms from the Almighty. But Greece is really just a type of a greater enemy that God's people face, in not just in the first few centuries BC, but rather in all of history. And the great enemy that God's people face is sin. And that's the real enemy behind these prophecies. And that's the real enemy that this coming king, this righteous man, yielding and, and holding salvation, humble, riding on a donkey, that's the enemy that this guy is going to destroy, the problem of sin for God's covenant people. And it's only in Jesus Christ that we see the real and full and final fulfillment of this prophecy. Because it's Christ who comes and speaks peace to the nations. And, of course, there's an already and a not yet fulfillment of this, isn't there? On the one hand, we have peace with God right now. As Christians, we are justified. We, we have, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, right? But there's another sense in which there's a not yet, because we are still awaiting the ultimate and final fulfillment of this peace that is coming to us in the new heavens and the new earth, in the beatific vision when we get to spend all eternity with Almighty God and Jesus Christ. And so let this today be an encouragement to you, right? That just as the foreshadowing of the prophetic fulfillment came to pass in the Maccabean Revolt, so the full and final fulfillment will come about And we can trust our God that he will bring all of these things about. Because we as his people are like the jewels of a crown. Like verse 16. We're like the jewels of a crown which shine in his land. God won't forget about us. And he will fulfill his promises. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is is so interconnected with itself. We can see all the New Testaments, all the books, the imagery, everything. It's amazing how it all comes together. And we know it does because it was written by you. And Lord, we're also amazed that your word so, so carefully is intertwined with history. And we know that's the case because just like your word, history is also written by you, and it comes to pass as you foreordained before the foundation of the world. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you would encourage us with these great truths today, knowing that you will keep your promises. You sent that king. He did come, and he did accomplish the work that you gave him to do. And, Lord, we anxiously, as Christians today, await the time when all these prophecies are fulfilled in their most full sense in heaven. Um, Grant to us joy as we think about that this morning and help us to glorify you in all that we do. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.